As the effects and controversies of COVID-19 continue to influence the lives of millions of American citizens, Republican Senator Ron Johnson of Wisconsin stands as a figure of a reason amidst the hysteria of the media, public health advocates and political operatives. Senator Johnson was infected last year and fully understands the implications of not managing the disease in its early stages. Now, despite earning criticism and censorship of his opinions, Senator Johnson has worked hard to inform the public of effective treatments available for COVID-19, along with the benefits of vaccines. First of all, Senator, great to catch up with you. Well, Mike, I hope you're well. I am very well right now. Uh, I haven't got my little box of ivermectin there, but I'm sure if ever I need to, I'll call Dr. Pierre Corey or somebody and get them to help me out a bit. Uh, Look, you've tried very hard to raise awareness about early treatment for COVID-19. We've interviewed Dr. Pierre Corey, uh, Dr. Peter McCullough, Dr. Zelenko, all brilliant physicians working with great success with their patients. How can these drugs and early treatment receive widespread adoption in the U.S. and maybe throughout the world? Because we do follow what happens in the U.S. Well, it's it's difficult. And that is what is so troubling as well as uh, puzzling. Uh, the, the, the minute I heard about hydroxychloroquine, there was a state senator in the state of Michigan that, that was treated by a doctor and had a miraculous recovery. Now, you know, just one, one patient does not uh, prove the case. But the, the, the minute I heard that there might be an early effective treatment, I thought this, this could really be great. I mean, this, this is something could potentially end this pandemic before it really takes hold if people felt that there is some cheap, effective generic drug that uh, could be used for for treatment. And so I immediately uh, started exploring that. I found out, uh, for example, that uh, Novartis had donated 30 30 million tablets to our national stockpile, but it was being held in our national stockpile. It wasn't being distributed in the states. And so I I, I tried to uh, break that logjam, and we started distributing that some in the states, but then something happened along the way. First of all, President Trump, uh, also thought it could really be effective. And so he talked about hydroxychloroquine, which apparently, because it came out of President Trump's lips, poisoned the well. And I guess the rest is a very sad and very destructive history of uh, health agencies around the world refusing to give hydroxychloroquine the type of uh, robust uh, trial treatment, to uh, explore uh, other options, you know, things like ivermectin, they completely ignored what Dr. Peter McCulloch talked about as the second pillar in pandemic relief, early treatment, which, which, by the way, Mike, what disease have you heard about where people aren't talking about, medical professionals aren't talking about early detection and early treatment? That's how we approach disease. And yet for, high, for uh, COVID, it's something we completely ignored uh, we put all of our effort in the vaccine, and you have to scratch your head and go, why? What, what is happening here? It's, it's very puzzling, very troubling. Uh, questionable, the FDA, uh, even just recently with their uh, Johnson & Johnson, um, um, uh, not, not banning, but uh, putting on hold their vaccine. Uh, so you got the FDA on one hand. Uh, they're very keen or very enthusiastic, the FDA, to, to actually... Um, 
want the, the citizens, want the world to uh, use a trial drug. Trials don't finish until 2023. And you're right, we have hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin sitting there on the shelves doing basically nothing. And it's uh, Peter McCullough said that um, uh, history will judge uh, governments, uh, FDA and other medical uh, associations very badly. What do you think? Well, if, if history ever gets the full story, uh, you know, from my standpoint, uh, these people will never admit they are wrong. And that's, that kind of provides you the answer to your first question. How, how can we get more Americans, more people worldwide understanding uh, about these potentially effective treatments? Uh, it's very difficult because the health agency officials that have, have blocked the use have vilified those doctors like Peter McCulloch and George Fareed, uh, pe- people who have spoken out like uh, Dr. Harvey Rich or Craig Kelly in, in Australia, pe- pe- you know, political figures that have spoken out about this. This common sense, obvious approach uh, to explore early treatment have been vilified, terminated from their positions, uh, and worse. Uh, it, it's 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 just unbelievable about this. So, you know, if if history never finds out about this, I don't know. You can really rely on history to judge them harshly. But the bottom line is, I truly believe, from what I know now, that the growing evidence that these things are effective. And again, I'm not a doctor, uh, but. You know, I'm talking to doctors who are thoroughly convinced that they have saved people's lives mm. by using these drugs. So we've we've really lost tens, if not hundreds of thousands of lives because our health agencies worldwide have, have vilified courageous doctors who have had the compassion to utilize their medical skills uh, in the U.S., their off-label prescription rights, and actually treated COVID patients. Now, the media, they won't write about it, whether it's uh, in the U.K., whether it's uh, in the U.S. or Australia, New Zealand, the western part of the world. They're not going to talk about it. But what do you think are the main forces operating, uh, I was going to say against them, but it's against you know early treatment, and it's for shutting all this information down and out, isn't it? Well, again, I hate to think it's it's simply dollars and cents because it makes no sense. We we have destroyed so many people's lives. I mean, the human toll of the economic devastation, which totals into the trillions and trillions of dollars, you know, from all these shutdowns because of the length of this pandemic, uh, is just untold. And if it's about profit to the pharmaceutical companies, it's even more unbelievable. You know, but when you take a look at, for example, the FDA put an emergency use authorization for remdesivir. And now, again, I, I wish remdesivir was the magic bullet, the, the cure, but it doesn't appear to be. In fact, the, the FDA, uh, the people doing the studies on remdesivir actually changed the final uh, observable outcome because it wasn't doing anything to reduce deaths, but it did seem to have some impact in terms of reducing hospital stays. So, or days in the hospital. So they, they changed the criteria in terms of the, the, the random control study outcome and gave it uh, their emergency use authorization. But remdesivir costs over $3,000 to treat a patient versus you know, these multi-drug cocktails using uh, ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine probably cost somewhere about 20 to no more than $50 per patient. Mm-hmm. Uh, is, is that the rationale? If it is, again, it's just shameful because... Uh, it's cost tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people their, their lives. You're right about the early treatment. Again, it's, as you said, it's the only um, the only disease I can think of where they say, go home. If you, if you turn blue in the face, uh, call the hospital. 
and then we'll throw you in a tent and try all sorts of things. Um, you're right about the money bit because I believe ivermectin is a, a couple of cents to make, um, whereas the investment is with the vaccines, uh, whether it's Pfizer or AstraZeneca or, or whoever or whatever. Um, so how do we get around this then? I mean, it's, you don't have to be, as they would say uh, in England, blind Freddy, because you can see there it's all about the money and not about the actual treatment. So what do we do? Well, the good news is uh, YouTube and other social media companies haven't, haven't been able to censor all the information. You know, c- kind of unbelievably, they took down uh, Dr. Pierre Corey's testimony in front of my committee uh, after it had about 8 million views. And they pulled that off because apparently their doctors are, are feel they're better doctors and and uh, thought that what Dr. Pierre Corey was uh, testifying about under oath, by the way, was uh, misinformation. Uh, and they they also pulled down a, a roundtable with uh, Governor Ron DeSantis. They pulled that off their their website too because they just for whatever reason don't want the public to have this information. But they can't pull. They have been able to pull down all the videos, so people are getting the information. But the problem is, you know, there aren't. There aren't as many doctors now to, today that are practicing medicine, that are u- utilizing their full medical skills, that they practice protocols. And, and I understand that. It makes an awful lot of sense. If, if you have a protocol that really is effective for most patients, you want to use that. It, it helps standardize care and probably leads to more effective treatment. But in the midst of a pandemic, when literally tens of thousands of people are dying, you need to think outside the box. and You need to really allow doctors to utilize their full medical skills, their compassion, and, and, and try different things, you know, different theories of the case, which is exactly what Dr. Pierre Corey did early on. I had him testify in May, and his group uh, came up with the use of corticosteroids instead of just putting people on ventilators. And that was a more effective in-hospital use. And then, he, of course, he kept exploring these things. He, he really became a real ad- adherent of ivermectin, uh, while other people think that hydroxychloroquine may, may be as good of, of, or better. Again, I'm not a doctor. I'm not here to express my opinion other than to say, if you contract COVID, find a medical professional, find a doctor who will consider looking at the literature, all the literature, and consider early treatment as opposed to, and you say this too, that the current NIH guideline is a compassionless uh, statement that basically says, uh, if you get diagnosed, go home, isolate yourself, scared, uh, alone, and just wait till you uh, your oxygen levels get below ninety four percent or worse, and then you know then check yourself in the hospital, and, and hopefully we can find something to cure you at that point in time, when it may be too late. Just back to the vaccines. I mean, do you think it threatens the emergency use authorizations given to the vaccines if they uh, start to promote you know, early treatments such as ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, and, and such? Well, that's certainly one of the possibilities here, and. And again, I, you know, I was actually contacting, you know, like the CEO of Novartis, uh, t- and he was telling me this is early, uh, probably April of 2020. And, you know, I was thanking him for donating 30 million tablets to the uh, uh, national stockpile. And then he was telling me about these studies that were going to be coming due about mid-May, end of May, early June. Once I started trying to contact him at that point in time, all of a sudden, it's radio silence. Like I couldn't get in, in touch with them. This is about the same time that everybody started talking about the, the possibility of doing a vaccine. And, and you're right. Uh, in American law, they cannot grant an emergency use authorization to a drug that doesn't have full FDA approval. And vaccines, it literally will take years for them to get full approval. Mm. So they had to rely on the emergency use authorization route. 
And if there's an effective treatment, uh, that emergency use authorization generally cannot be granted. Now, you can probably always find some exception to the rule, but uh, that might that might be one of the rationales why they just completely snubbed uh, early treatment. Because, again, there's no money in a generic drug generally for the big drug companies uh, where there's li- we've literally thrown tens of billions of dollars at these big at these big drug drug companies to develop the vaccine. By the way, I, I was a big supporter of Operation Warp Speed. I think it was brilliant the way President Trump and Secretary Azar squeezed out all the economic inefficiencies of rapidly develop, developing a vaccine. But again, I, I also am talking to doctors who are really questioning whether an, a, a drug that has not been fully approved, that hasn't gone through the years of, of trials so that we can take a look at what is the potential long-term effect. Um, there were vaccinating everybody as opposed to limiting it to really the most vulnerable. Um, again, I, I'm not a doctor. I, I'm not qualified to make those uh, decisions, but I think those are legitimate questions. I think people should be able to ask those questions and quite honestly decide for themselves whether they want to take the vaccine, that they feel they're high enough of risk uh, with, without a fully approved drug. That ought to be their right to choose treatment or not to be treated and hopefully not vilified by not having a, a vaccine passport. I hope that we don't start going down that path because that really represents a threat to our freedom. We'll get onto that in a second. Uh, but first of all, the, uh, the medical censorship being imposed by media and especially big tech. Do we know why big tech is involved in this type of censorship? I really don't. Uh, I, I can tell you I'm trying to investigate all of this. Uh, again, I, I have found this so puzzling and so troubling that what seemed to be so common sense you know, robustly exploring early treatment rather than immediately dismissing it and vilifying anybody who'd even talk about things like hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin. It makes no sense that the utter closed mindedness and then throw on top of that, you know, those are the health agencies, but, but then the media and then social media actually starting to censor other Americans from having this information. Again, in the information age with, with, with the, the computer, what we ought to have is all kinds of doctors practicing medicine, attempting different treatments on patients that are dying, and then sharing their experience over the internet. You know, we have this capability today that we didn't have 100 years during the Spanish flu. And yet, we haven't been able to fully utilize that capability because of the censorship. And, and, and Mike, I can't explain why, you know, the, the, the owners and the, the, the people who operate uh, things like Twitter and Facebook and YouTube and Google are denying the world information that might help save people's lives. I I can't explain it at all. We've experienced the joy of being knocked off uh, YouTube and we're on at the moment very, very thin ice. So we uh, we use Rumble a lot. But the the authority that they have for this type of censorship, I mean, sure, they're saying they're a private company. So as a private company, they can they can do what they like. But they also have a responsibility to to mankind, don't they take away that discussion and you really haven't got science. No, and again, you know, one, one thing we haven't pointed out is how incredibly safe hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin are. You know, the World Health Organization, according to Dr. Peter Corey, was, was labeled a miracle drug in its use as an anti-parasite uh, drug. Hydroxychloroquine, I mean, that was developed and obtained approval 65 years ago, I think it was. Now, it was approved as an anti-malarial drug. It's been used off-label. I don't think it's ever been approved for use in lupus 
and rheumatoid arthritis, which is its primary use today. But these drugs are incredibly safe. Uh, I've heard that Tylenol, you know, because it, it has some, some problems with the liver toxicity. If you use it uh, drinking alcohol or you use too much of it, you can o- overdose on Tylenol. These drugs may be safer than Tylenol. And yet, uh, so, so the risk-reward ratio of is minimal, minuscule risk of giving a shot. I mean, why not try it uh, in terms of early treatment? It made no sense whatsoever. And yet these social media companies in particular, but also media, the way they vilified people, but they took it upon themselves to censor that information and keep potentially life-saving information from the American public and the world public. The bean counters are really working overtime with these vaccine companies. Uh, but also they're talking about boosters and the new strains. There's you know, this wild strain that you're going to need another booster on top of that booster. The bean counters, you can see why they are really working overtime because it's this bottomless pit. And until they allow ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine and such early treatment, uh, it's just going to be this never-ending parade of, of vaccines, isn't it? Yeah, I'm, I'm afraid it is. And, and again, you, you have to take a look at the, the risk-reward. You know, if you're over 70, uh, the infection fatality rate is probably somewhere around 5%. That, that's a pretty deadly disease. But I just saw, read a, a, a study out of Sweden, uh, 1.8 million school-aged children, who, who, by the way, attended class. They never shut down schools that they had in-person learning. Uh, not one person, not one child died of COVID. And actually, the teachers had a lower infection rate than the, than the other essential workers in Sweden. So, I mean, there's science. Those are hard numbers. And, and the fact of the matter is the risk of dying from COVID, particularly if you're young, if you're a child, is actually less than dying from the flu. So you have to take a look at this uh, science and, and then ask, why would anybody push a vaccine that is being administered under an emergency use authorization where you don't have the long-term studies? Why would anybody push that on children? Or, you know, quite honestly, what I again, I'm not a doctor, I have to keep throwing that qualifier. But what I understand of disease in general, if you've had the disease, your body has the antibodies. I mean, having the disease, I've always felt was better than a vaccine, because you've actually had the disease, you've developed the antibodies, you ought to have some pretty good immunity. Um, Why would you be pushing people that have already had the disease? Why would you push the vaccine on them, particularly when you realize what generally kills people from COVID is not necessarily the COVID virus itself. It's the body's immune response to it. It's an over immune response. It's the, the cytokine storm that kills you. So, you know, people are having some issues. If you have autoimmune diseases or if you've already had COVID, that might be a problem. So, again, I don't have the answers, nor do the health agencies. And so why are we pushing uh, the vaccine on everybody when so many people's risk is extremely low. It just, it doesn't make any sense. Also, uh, a recent case uh, in New Zealand, um, a, a worker at the uh, Auckland airport um, uh, tested positive. Uh, he already had the, the vaccine. So the vaccine isn't the, uh, the magic tablet that's going to, or the magic shot jab that's going to eradicate forever the chance of getting COVID. You can still get it. Yes, but again, I I think the science tells us that it certainly appears that the vaccine is highly effective. Nothing's ever 100 percent effective. Mm. I think the initial test says about 95 percent effective. So, again, I think the assumption is even if you get COVID with the vaccine, you'll have lower symptoms. And it also is 
you know, they've administered, you know, hundreds of millions of doses. And, you know, the, the reaction to it in terms of serious reaction, in terms of death is still, I mean, it's, there are, have been deaths. There's no doubt about right. it. Uh, I think in the VAER system uh, in the U- U.S., it's over 3,000 deaths. But you compare that as a percentage, you know, anytime you inject something in the body, there are risks. You know, every human body is different. People react to it. Mm. But again, that's why it should be people's right to try, but also people's right to choose. Nobody should be forced, you know, either, uh, you know, by the government or just through peer pressure to take the vaccine. That should be an individual choice and hopefully an informed choice. A guy called John O'Sullivan, who's been a guest on our show a few times, a uh, lovely guy. He says there's uh, that the, 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 the population can be like sheep um, and the vaccine passport sort of sort of um, identifies with what he's saying because the consensus with a vaccine passport, because people don't really know enough, they've been told only one narrative, is, OK, it's going to save our lives, we know who's got it, but it's been ruled out by several US states. The administration said they would leave it to the private sector uh, what are the main problems with this? One being left to the private sector because, you know, they're very honourable people, aren't they? And, and secondly, the, the true story about the vaccine passport isn't just about the vaccine. Well, you, one of the questions I have, you know, we have, I don't know what it's like in Australia, but, uh, you know, we have health privacy laws here. Um, so, you know, with other diseases uh, that, there are, you know, advocacy or advocates for, there's no way you could even ask somebody as an employer, have you ever had this disease? I mean, it's just simply not allowed. It's illegal. Mm. They can sue you for doing that. And yet with COVID, it seems like there are no privacy considerations or restrictions here. It's just, it's just very odd. So again, I don't think anybody should be coerced to take a vaccine. I think it's everybody's right to try. I think people should be fully informed, you know, get all the facts. Um, but, I, but I'm utterly opposed to government-imposed or, or even government use of, of uh, vaccine passports. And I, I would caution uh, businesses in the private sector uh, not to limit their customer base either. I mean, that, that's got to be a decision they make. Mm. I can see an airline one day saying this is available to everybody, not just those with the, the vaccine passport. The UK, um, I think it was about 1,200 clergy uh, put their names to a, a letter saying, that if uh, Boris Boris Johnson decides to have a inverted commas temporary and whichever <laughs> whichever government yeah. policy is temporary, it's going to be there forever. Have this have this uh, passport for for vaccines. Um, it said that that it will create a two tier system. But what about the imposition of such passports by U.S. airlines and initiatives such as the Common Pass involving big tech, big health? Uh, WEF, uh, big money, uh, could they take the initiative and just impose something so you bypass the government and it becomes this private in, uh, private enterprise that's sanctioned by all these companies such as airlines and hotel chains, supermarkets and so forth? Well, again, I, I'm, I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a doctor. Uh, but I would start questioning whether or not our health privacy laws, things like HIPAA, might prevent private companies from asking that kind of information. Uh, so I, I'm not sure it's allowed. You know, states may be passing laws not to allow it, but again, it just doesn't make sense. Because first of all, if you have the vaccine widely available and, and, and quite soon anybody who wants to get a vaccine 
in the U.S. at least, will have it available. So, again, the science is saying it's a very effective vaccine, you know, 95% effective. So if you've had a vaccine, you ought to feel pretty confident that you're not going to catch COVID. Or if you do, you're going to have pretty mild symptoms. Like, by the way, the vast majority of people that catch COVID, I had COVID, I had no symptoms. I was one of the lucky ones, probably had another coronavirus earlier, might have had T-cell immunity. You know, the body's immune system is pretty phenomenal. But that's probably why 40 to 50 percent of anybody, of people that got COVID were asymptomatic. But again, does it make any sense if you've gotten the vaccine? Why should you be worried? Mm. No, again, if, if, if the vaccine were only 30 percent effective, I could understand that. But as long as you've got the vaccine, it's 95 percent effective. Really, what do you care whether somebody else gets the vaccine or not? That's really their choice. If they want to weigh the risk of either taking the vaccine versus their chances of getting a severe case of COVID, that's their choice. That, that's their freedom. Uh, and again, it, it, it doesn't threaten anybody that has had a vaccine made available to them. Compliance by fear seems to be the, the order of the day with whether it's the US government, British government, Australian, New Zealand, most governments. And the fear part is that, you know, we're going to save your life. You've got to do exactly as we say. Um, sort of a little bit overboard, isn't it, Senator? Well, again, a guy like me who asks a lot of questions, literally asks the questions, why are they doing this? Again, it, it makes no sense. If, if the vaccine is that effective, why would anybody care if they're sitting you know, on an, uh, a, an airliner next to somebody who wasn't, that didn't get vaccinated? Now, again, I, 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 I never have liked sitting on a, on a plane when somebody's sniffling and coughing and, and looking horribly sick. I kind of wish that those individuals would you know, stay home and travel when you're well. So, I mean, there's just some common courtesy things here. But again, if, if you've had the vaccine, you're pretty well protected from COVID. Why would you care? Which means, by extension, why would the companies care that uh, they're only going to serve customers that have, have been vaccinated? Again, it, it makes no sense. And I, I would argue it doesn't make much sense economically for businesses to, uh, you know, literally uh, – turn off a, a very large percentage, potentially, of, of the population from being their customers. Have you ever seen such censorship and such... I mean, we can, we can say it's biased because we're on, the, uh, on one side, but there seems to be a lack of reporting, there's a lack of uh, ethics shown by journalists these days. That was sort of ramped up, I think, when uh, uh, President Trump or Donald Trump decided to run for presidency and did an excellent job for four years... But the media and the press, social media, uh, of course, the, the opposition, uh, they just ramped it up to an extent that I have never seen before. Journalism, as part of that hysteria, just went by the wayside, didn't it? Well, in the U.S., and every country is probably different, in the U.S., we, are ha- we have fewer and fewer journalists and a lot more advocates. And, you know, I, I always date this back to uh, the, the Vietnam War protests in the 60s. In, in, in which the radical left took over our university systems. And so now you have radical leftists in so many of our colleges and universities, and they're in control of colleges of education, of journalism, and law. And so th- they've controlled our culture. I- I'm actually surprised that uh, this hasn't uh, come to fruition sooner, where all these people they've, they've educated, they- they've educated our educators to be liberals. They- they've educated journalists to be liberals. And so particularly in the press, uh, we, we have a bunch of liberal advocates, not journalists. Uh, we had a, a pretty famous judge, conservative judge on the D.C. Circuit Court, uh, Judge Silberman, 
in a recent opinion, basically accused the press of being the Democrat broad street or broadsheet. Uh, it, it, it is an advocacy. Uh, they're part and parcel of, of the liberal party in our country called the Democrats, and they are censoring. Uh, they, they, you know, not only have incredible bias and attack conservatives like Donald Trump or myself, um, they, they also censor information. And a lot of censorship is occurring on social media. Uh, you know, you know there, there was such a, a big uh, to-do made about potential Trump campaign collusion with Russia. And, uh, you know, the, the press covered that and they're all huffing and puffing about that, that Russia could interfere in our election. Well, the any kind of interference that Russia ever could have hoped to have had in our election pales in comparison to the interference and the influence that the mainstream media has always had, but in particular in 2016 and now in 2020. I mean, I, I did the investigation on Hunter Biden. You know, we, we provided a, a, a solid report that had all kinds of troubling financial foreign entanglements of Hunter Biden and, and the Biden family, Biden Inc. The press dismissed it. And as a result, uh, polls later came out that had Democrat voters known about Hunter Biden, there would have been enough that wouldn't have voted for now President Biden that President Trump would have won. Again, those are some pretty valid polls. So that is the impact that the bias in the media and the social media are having on American politics. My guess is similar uh, in other countries as well. President Trump, uh, he was not ashamed to say that he was the president of America first. President Biden uh, is a president for the world. That's what it seems like. And you look at the last two, two scenarios. He wants the m- minimum tax rate for the world. Secondly, climate change. This invisible, mysterious beast that we, we can't see, but we know it's going to happen because they're telling us, which is quite, quite wrong anyway. So you have President Biden... Uh, running around telling the rest of the world how to run their country and up the corporate tax rate or make sure it doesn't hit below 21%. You've got President Biden running around the world telling everybody, if you want to do business with the US, you need to do more with your emissions. Um, Do you think President Biden should probably concentrate on his own problems at home? Well, one thing we've learned is socialism never works. You know, I'm certainly reminded of a uh, former defense secretary under President Obama, Robert Gates, uh, commenting that uh, you know, Joe Biden, Senator Biden, had been wrong on every major foreign policy issue for the last 40 years. But now that's the group that's in charge. Uh, I, I think President Trump's America first was was oftentimes misinterpreted. Uh, he always encouraged other world leaders to understand that their job was to put uh, Australia first or the UK first or Germany first. If you do that, just like if you're running a business, if you if you put your business first, if you compete in the marketplace, take care of your employees, you're, you're going to be a good customer. You're going to be a good supplier. You know, By putting America or your country first, you're going to be a good ally. Uh, you're going to have a successful company. Y- your population is going to have opportunity and prosperity. And so you're not going to be looking to, to get into a war somewhere. So by putting your country first, it's first is the first responsibility of, of those that govern nations. You actually, by improving your own nation, you're making yourself a, a more uh, a safer, uh, a less threatening, uh, a better ally 
to uh, the, the, the world community, quite honestly. So, again, I, I thought America first was always a wise policy, as I think Australia first or New Zealand first is a smart policy, but also making sure that you're following the, the rules of the world and you're being responsible world citizen while you're putting your nation and your citizens first. President Biden's stumble on the stairs with Air Force One the other day seems to be exactly what's happening with his presidency. It's uphill and stumbling. Law and order, racial divisions, border crisis, China, Russia, and of course we mentioned Hunter. If you were in his shoes right now, what would you do? What, how would you turn the tide? Well, first of all, I wish he would live up to the words of his inaugural address where he talked about really is his primary goal was to unite and heal our nation. Mm. Uh, he's doing the exact opposite. He's doing everything, you know, totally partisan, and he's dividing. Uh, you know, so much of the, the left-wing protests uh, were divisive. It's not healing. Uh, you know, we just had uh, the, the famous verdict of uh, Derek Chauvin. Uh, and it, the, the left got the court decision they were looking for, and it's still not good enough. You know, President Biden comes out and he talks about how America is systemically racist. I don't believe that's true. We're not perfect, but we've come a long way in a multiracial nation. I, I would argue America has got to be one of the best, uh, na- well, it's, it, from my standpoint, it's the, the best nation in history of mankind. But from a standpoint of, of harmony of, of uh, a multiracial uh, nation, we're doing a pretty good job. So the first thing I would do is actually live up to my rhetoric and try and heal this nation, try and unite it. And if he would do that, he would, he would have all kinds of willing partners. I certainly would be a willing partner. Um, there is such a desire on the part of, of the vast majority of Americans to come together. We are, Americans are sick of this divisiveness. We, we are sick of fighting. We actually do care about each other. So one of the things, I, as a business person, uh, the way you achieve success in business is you try to find areas of agreement. Now, there's things you're always going to disagree about, but concentrate on areas of agreement. And here's the easiest one you can agree on is our basic goals. We all share the same goal. We, we all want a safe, a prosperous, and secure America, world, the nation you live in. We do care about each other. Uh, we want to see people succeed. We want to see people prosperous. And that's true within America, but that's true that Americans want to see the best for the rest of the world, too. It, it is so disappointing that Russia and China and Iran and North Korea have chosen a malign path. If they would choose a benign path as, as no more than friendly rivals, you know, they'd be welcome into the world order, and we would see a whole lot more peace and a whole lot more prosperity. So, But, but people want power, and that ends up you know, causing wars and all kinds of strife between nations. It's, it's very unfortunate. Uh, Senator Ron Johnson from Wisconsin, the place of cheese and beer. Uh, both go well together. Thank you very much. Well, pleasure being with you. Appreciate the opportunity. Stay well.